Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to another wonderful Sunday here at Taylorville UMC. I'm so glad that each and every one of you is here with us on this first Sunday after Easter. Now, we are finally, finally on the other side of Easter from Lent. We have spent weeks now going through and focusing on the idea that we are people who are fallen and desperately in need of grace, the grace that only God can offer. It's a time of repentance and penitence, and we've been doing that for 40 days, for weeks. That was what we talked about. And then Easter happens, and we switch from, a, uh, from an atmosphere of penitence from an atmosphere of penance to an atmosphere of celebration, of rejoicing. And so that's kind of what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks here as we move through this Easter season. Because after all, we are Easter people. We are people of the resurrection, and that's something to celebrate. That's something to rejoice in, because even as we celebrate, or even as we observe the season of Lent, we know that we are still on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that brings me quickly to our main uh, scripture reading for the week. So if you'll turn with me to John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, uh, we can go ahead and get started. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters in through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. A few years ago, my sister, my little sister, who was 18 or 19 at the time, got really into skydiving. She went several times, and she always came back excited and wanting to tell us about how cool of an experience it was. And I have to confess, I didn't really get it. I still don't really get it, because I'm not much of a thrill seeker myself, so things like skydiving and extreme sports and even adventures like backpacking across Europe never really sounded all that appealing to me. But as my sister was so excited about it, I took the opportunity to ask some of the other people that I knew who were into it, where I wasn't into it, who enjoyed that kind of thing, just what it was all about, why they did such crazy things. What's well, simple, they said. It's about just... It's about just trying to live life to the fullest. People are willing to go to extremes in pursuit of living life to the fullest. To find a thrill or feel fulfillment, or in most cases, just to find something that makes them happy. Because let's be honest here, at the end of the day, we all just want to be happy. But the pursuit of happiness is a never-ending one, supported or interrupted by decisions and circumstances, by 
things both within and beyond our control. This is why self-help books and movements are so popular. They promise answers, promise to make you a better person if you just follow these simple steps, promise to make you successful and therefore happy if you can just live up to certain principles and standards. The basic message is always the same, that your happiness depends on you. It's your responsibility, and if you're unhappy, it's because you're not doing the right things. Living life to the fullest, as with extreme sports, can let you do amazing things and see amazing places. But at the end of the day, those experiences come to an end. And you're left with just memories, which is something, but it's not quite the same. Again, the message is that happiness comes from you, from what you do and how you live, and yet it's always fleeting, it's always temporary, because it's so dependent on things outside of your control, on experiences, or success, or belongings. When you reflect on all of that, you have to ask yourself, is this what a full life really looks like? This is the question that we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks because the Bible has a lot to say about it, as it turns out. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Other translations say that last part in different ways, most commonly that they may have it abundantly, which I've always thought beautifully conveys this sense that life in Christ is so great that we can't contain it. It's abundant. And I know I don't quote the message version of the Bible very often, but Eugene Peterson, who wrote it, said it very well, I think, when he translated this passage like this. I came so they could have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. I don't know about you, but that is something that I want to hear about. That's something I want to focus on. That sounds like exactly what I've been looking for. New, better, abundant life. This is so multifaceted. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about things like hope, like seeing blessings in tough times, like being in a community that helps you grow. But for today, for this first week of this, let's look a little bit further into those three things that we see about uh, in John 10. And we'll talk about what it means to have new, better, abundant life. So what you need to know going into this is that there are big fundamental differences between what Jesus promises and what you'll find in self-help type programs. In some ways, there's a lot less pressure because you don't have the burden of constantly grinding away to keep the things that make you happy. Jesus' way is a lot less situationally dependent. But what Jesus promises is also a lot more costly than any attempts to do it yourself. While other people and programs and things might tell you that the secret to happiness and a full life is staying healthy, working hard, learning to love yourself or something else 
like that, Jesus tells you that none of that, none of those things will create in you a sustainable, unshakable joy. Those other things can make you happy for a time, for sure. They can create the feeling of happiness. But the happiness of Christ is something far deeper. All those other things say that you can improve your life by changing your habits, which is true. Don't get me wrong. But it's not enough because, let's just be frank here and be honest, at the end you still die. And that's not very happy, is it? The difference between what Jesus offers and what self-help offers is that Jesus asks more, but promises more. Temporary changes yield temporary improvements, but Jesus says that if you'll trust in him instead of yourself, then you can have new life that's better and more abundant than anything you'd ever be able to achieve by helping yourself. You can have new life where happiness isn't just a feeling, but is built into the very foundation of your soul. The very fact that this is new life tells us that it's not at all like what came before. It's not the same thing. This might seem obvious, but in reality, it's the most beautiful and challenging part of the deal. It's what makes this so costly and so freeing. Think about this. Jesus says that before he arrived, we were overwhelmed by thieves who came to kill and destroy. There are so many things in our world that promise happiness and satisfaction and fullness of life, things that proclaim your life will be so much better if you just buy this new car. You could be happy if you joined our gym and whipped yourself into shape, or forget your troubles at the casino one spin of the roulette wheel at a time. The whole basis of advertising, after all, is that you need this thing or you need this experience to be happy, but nobody ever wants you to actually be happy because then you'd stop buying things that make you happier. Happy people don't buy as many things. This world feeds on your insecurities, robbing you of true joy so that you'll buy a poor substitute. It's not just marketing, either. There will always be someone better looking than you, someone stronger than you, someone more talented or wealthy or successful than you. So if you find your happiness in any of those things, you'll never really be satisfied because you'll never stop wanting more. You'll pour yourself out chasing after unachievable goals then it's over. But that's only true. It's only true if you're bound to the old life. See, when Jesus makes his promise, he says, I will keep the thieves and robbers and murderers out so that you don't have to worry about them anymore. It doesn't matter how fully you've bought into anything else, how far you've gone in search of happiness. When Jesus came, when he died and was raised back to life, he did so for everyone, for the priests and the prostitutes alike.
for the rich and the poor just the same. He doesn't care whether you were top of your class or if you dropped out, whether you're a teetotaler or sitting at rock bottom. It doesn't matter where you start because everyone, no matter how successful they seem, is running an impossible race. Jesus doesn't care who you are or where you've been or what you've done. He only cares that you take his hand and are lifted up out of the grave. When Jesus brings new life, he's telling you that you aren't stuck in the past. And you can have a future in his kingdom. Now that's one of those Christian phrases, of course, the kingdom of God. Let me tell you, in the same way that you're a citizen in the place where you're born, being born again in Christ means that you become a citizen of his kingdom. This can be confusing, though. I mean, imagine that you've just told someone the good news, that there's a place where they're welcome and wanted, where they can come out of the emptiness that they've known and into a new, full life. And then think about the response that you'd probably get. Great, how do I get there? Let's go right now. I want to be there. How do you respond to that? You've just promised hope and peace and joy, and you've got their interest. What are you going to say now? Are you going to say, well, here's the thing. We can't go right now. Not yet. You, uh, you've got to live the rest of your life and then die first, and then you can go there to a place of perfect, perfect peace. There's just one problem with that. It's not what Jesus said. After promising new life, after saying that you need to be born again to see the kingdom, Jesus didn't say, I've come to usher in that kingdom eventually. The kingdom of God is coming sometime later. No, he said the kingdom of God is within you. It's among you. It's here. The kingdom of God is here now. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus did the work of establishing the kingdom here and now so that everyone who trusts in him and tastes new life will have somewhere to belong and somewhere to grow in their faith. It's the church, the big C universal church, which is made up of people who've experienced this new life. See, when we're redeemed by Christ, when we're born into this new life, we are changed so that we begin to see the world as he does. God works within us from the moment that we're born again to make us holy, which means we begin to see through holy eyes. When we see people who've not yet heard the good news, we begin to want to tell them about the good, redeeming power of Jesus we see the heart that needs something more and want to share with them where to find it. When we see pain, we begin to mourn with them just as God mourns with them. When we see the poor, we begin to long to lift them up just as God wants. And when we see people who've learned to trust in Christ, we welcome them 
with open arms, just as Jesus welcomes them, just as Jesus welcomed us. And that's what forms the church. We come together in love so that we can support one another and be supported because it's so hard to stay committed when the world so persistently tries to pull you back. So we have new life in Christ, but it's not just new life. It's not just a novel kind of change. It's a better life. In the first place, it's better because we can leave behind the burdens that we have and we can live as people fully redeemed and accepted. In Matthew eleven thirty, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As I said before, accepting Jesus' promise is challenging because it requires us to leave behind everything that we had before, everybody, or everyone that we were before, including our pride and our ambitions. But when we do so, we're exchanging those worthless old priorities for something so much better, something so much more valuable. In this case, we're exchanging them for freedom. Sure, you're leaving behind a life where indulgence is seen as virtue, but you're entering into a life where you're free of the exhaustions of the world. But you're not just free from something, you're free for something as well. In Christ, you know, we're freed for faithful obedience. One of the biggest burdens that people face in life is the stress of finding their purpose, of figuring out what to do in a culture that values doing so heavily. There's two things that come with this new life in Christ that make it better here. First, that your value is not based on what you do at all, but on the love of Jesus. The second, that you don't have to search for purpose anymore, because we can find our purpose in God as well. You know, there's a famous line that you may have heard before in church. Uh, maybe you heard it in confirmation class, assuming you can remember confirmation class, that is. It comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that's built around the question of purpose. This question asks, what is the chief end of man? It's a question that asks what we were designed and meant to do. And the answer given is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Remember, our main focus here today is on happiness and living a good life, so this should really stand out. Let's take this piece by piece because this short phrase really has a lot to work through. By living in accordance with how we're designed, we can experience fullness of self. The first piece is this, to glorify God. Now that seems like an active thing. How is this any different, you might be asking, from self-help strategies, if this is still something that I have to do? 
I thought we didn't have to earn our happiness. But look, the difference here is that glorifying God isn't about doing something, but rather it's about giving up control and letting the Holy Spirit work within us to make us holy. Hear that again. God is glorified when we let him work in us and through us rather than working ourselves. The second piece of this is the one that probably jumped out the most, if you're anything like me, and that's that our purpose is to enjoy him. What you have to know is that everything that's lacking in life, every bad thing that exists, only has power in imperfection. Paul said it clearly, the wages of sin are death, not just for individuals, but for a world where sin permeates everything. Sadness, anger, loneliness, addiction, even sickness, and yes, death itself can only exist in a world that's separated from God. So the more that relationship is mended, the more it's restored, the more perfect and alive things become. You see this come to its conclusion in the final piece of this phrase, which is that this enjoyment is forever. We can know that a day is coming when the dead will be raised back to life, where all of creation will be lifted from the grave and will stand before the throne. And we can know that through faith in Jesus, that the work that he's begun in us will be completed and will be restored to perfect relationship with him and with one another. In that word forever, we can have hope and peace because in the same way that everything we strive after in this life is temporary, so too is everything that we're burdened by. So too is everything that there is to fear. And this new and better life where there's a place for everyone who comes and where even death loses its power, it's eternal. Jesus came so that we not only will have life, but will have it in abundance. When we take shelter in him, when we live as citizens of his kingdom, he acts as the gate to keep the thieves and the murderers away and to keep us safe. When the whole world just wants to consume us, when we're told that we're only as good as what we have to offer, when we're told we need this or that to be happy or fulfilled, Jesus tells us the truth. In him, we already have our value. And we're more than what we have. And he guides us as we go through life, too. When we accept the new life that he offers, we're transformed. That's what it takes to be born again, right? We're transformed into people who are free to live in pursuit of God. And we're given the Spirit to guide us and help us as we go. You're not alone in this. You have the Holy Ghost to guide your life. And you have a church full of people who are going through the same transformative process. Who are all being renewed day by day. And who want to walk with you. And though this new life that frees you 
from your past, through this new life that frees you from, the, from your past, in this better life where you can know peace and fulfillment and happiness in a way that would otherwise be impossible, in the abundant grace of Jesus Christ where there's more than enough for everyone and there's always a place for you, you can see that Jesus truly is the way to salvation. That's what all of this is, after all. We're being saved from the fallenness of the world, from the emptiness that blankets our hearts, from the guilt of mistakes and the pain of loss. We're saved from the hopelessness that says that this life is all there is and the pressure that says you're never enough. And we're being saved from death because the story goes on even after that. It goes on into the time when we finally know what it means to enjoy God forever. Amen.